a fable. There was once a dangerous sea coast, and shipwrecks frequently happened there. A little life-saving station was built, a crude little building and only one boat. But the handful of devoted members watched over the seas day and night, and they would go out at any time in any weather to search for the lost. Some of the people who were saved and others from the community wanted to be a part of the life-saving station and support their work. So the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members became unhappy with the conditions of the building. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided for those who are being rescued. So they replaced the cots with permanent beds and put in nice furniture and enlarged the building. Now the life-saving station became a gathering place for its members. They used it sort of like a club. Fewer and fewer members were interested in going to sea on the life-saving missions, so they hired a professional life-saving crew to do this work. The life-saving motif was still used in the club's decorations, and they had a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About that time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. The club was in chaos. The property committee got together and they built a shower house and an outbuilding so that the victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before they came inside the club. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because it was unpleasant and it kind of got in the way of the social life of the club. Some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives of the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could start their own lifeguard station down the coast. And so they did. And as the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old. And it happened over and over. It evolved into a club and another life-saving station was started. And it went on like that for years. If you visit that seacoast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. It's dangerous when you forget why you exist. You either run around in so many directions that you accomplish nothing and exhaust yourself, or you begin to focus solely on your own personal desires. If you have a purpose and forget it, that's a tragedy. And we need to make sure that we avoid that. But it's an amazing opportunity when we have a chance at a fresh start like we do now, as individuals and as a church, we have a new chance to figure out our purpose and to live into it. And if we do, it will give us a chance to focus, to live with significance, to maximize the use of our time and our resources, and to really make a contribution to what God is doing in the world. Living with purpose is a game changer. Right at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus sets out his purpose statement. So we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. So let's dig in a little bit. Verse 14 says Jesus returned to Galilee. So where was he before? Well, right before in the account is the account of his baptism, the public beginning of his ministry. After his baptism, the first thing that happens is that he's tested. And we get this. Anytime you make a commitment, it's going to be tested. I always say that faith is really easy to have until you actually need it. Then it's hard. But it really goes further back than his baptism and his temptation. Jesus is fully human. That means for the first 30 years, give or take, he's preparing for the call that God has on his life. He's learning. He's studying the scriptures. He's putting things together. And even in this account, right at the beginning of his ministry, he starts out a little bit slowly. He kind of test drives the thing. And verse 15 tells us that the initial response is positive. Everyone praised him. Then he goes home, back to Nazareth. In verse 16, it's like, hometown boy makes good. And it comes back to the folks who knew him back when. So he goes into the synagogue, and it's time for the reading of the scroll. And it was pretty typical that they looked for a volunteer to read. And so you can see them looking around going, oh, let's get Jesus to do it. Everyone will love that. We all remember when he was just a kid. It'll be really cute. So they hand the scroll to Jesus. And it's not really clear. It's the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It's not really clear whether that was the text of the day or he scrolls to it. But he gets to Isaiah 61, and that's what's quoted here. It's a familiar passage. Everybody probably had it memorized, and they mouthed it along with him. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. But then verse 20, and it becomes different. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Essentially, he says, the promise that Isaiah made 500 years ago, this thing that you've been waiting for, it's happening now. It's about me. And it's a statement about what I've come to do. And this is an important starting point for us as we consider what our purpose is. If we're followers of Jesus, we have to look at what Jesus came to do and then swim in that stream for a while. If we're going to figure out what our purpose is as individuals and collectively as a church, we need to start with where Jesus himself starts and find our purpose within the purpose of Jesus. So let's take a look. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. Notice the importance of the presence of the Spirit for Jesus. There are lots of things that can motivate us, but Jesus is motivated by God's Spirit. So the first part of his purpose is to stay connected to God, to be motivated by God. Next, to proclaim good news to the poor. What's good news for the poor? Well, you won't be poor anymore. You'll get a fair shake. I mean, in the vaccine rollout, there has been no headline that said, poor people skip ahead and get shots before they're turned. I mean, they'll get the rest of us out. You'll be accepted. 
God accepts you, seeks you out, God includes you. There's an end to the difficulty of life for you. That's good news for poor people. And when we look at the first thing that Jesus names as his purpose, we need to make sure that we aren't buying into this false dichotomy, which borders on Gnosticism, that Jesus is only interested in saving people's souls, and that anything that looks like improving their lives here and now isn't of much concern to Jesus and shouldn't be for us. That somehow we cheapen the gospel by trying to improve people's lives. Jesus is interested in the condition of people's lives their physical conditions as well as spiritual conditions. Think about this. How many of the prayers that we pray are about physical things? We ask for our health, for our jobs, for our marriages, for our kids. Uh, if we didn't pray about physical needs, our prayers would be a whole lot shorter. God's concerned about the conditions of our lives, but he's also concerned about the conditions of the lives of other people, everybody for that matter. The kingdom of God is good news for people here and now, not just there and then. It's a both-and proposition. It isn't just about preaching the gospel. It isn't about just meeting physical needs. It's about both. The kingdom of God is good news to the whole person. Then he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner. What's a prisoner? Well, somebody in jail. Grace extends even to them. But it's also a release from addictions and other bondages. I think of all the parents and grandparents I know who are agonizing over an addiction that one of their kids or grandkids is struggling with. Recovery of sight for the blind, several meanings. There's the physical healing that you can't see, people who are literally blind. But I think there's people who can't see reality, maybe because of pain or delusion or whatever but also an element of revealing God's plan and purposes. Paul says, we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. To set the oppressed free. I remember distinctly a time where I was driving and I came around a corner and I looked and I could see a parked car and I could see just enough to see a guy haul off and hit a woman in the face. And I remember thinking, you don't have to be in this relationship. You can be set free from that. And then I think about all the oppressed people in the world. The gospel is good news for them. And then this, the acceptable year of the Lord. These are new times Jesus is ushering in. It's like saying, you've been waiting and here it is. It's like the year of Jubilee in the Bible, where everything returns to its right owner. We belong to the powers and the principalities of evil and pain and sin and death but now we're being returned to our rightful owner, God. That's the message of Easter, right? And then Jesus rolls up the scroll because that's the sum of what he's come to do. He knows what he came to do, but he also knows what he wasn't called to do. He wasn't called to lead an armed revolt. He wasn't called to reestablish pure worship in the temple. He wasn't called to write a manual on Christian living and church conflict, Paul was. Because he knows what he wasn't called to do, he isn't swayed by what other people want from him. Every time an opportunity comes up for Jesus, and usually it's relationally, Jesus evaluates whether it helps him reach his purpose or not. So he takes a detour to talk to a tax collector. He weeps with his friends. And he tells other people, no. He looks at several people and says, I didn't come for you. He tells them all of this is happening now. And then what happens? What's their response? Well, it doesn't come across really well in English. 
Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Amazed at his gracious words. It's more like appalled at the way he's tossing grace around so liberally. It was too much grace to all the wrong people. Why do I think this? Because the next thing that happens is they get mad and they try to throw him off of a cliff in response to what he said. Maybe that's not a bad purpose statement. Too much grace for all the wrong people. As long as you don't mind being thrown off a cliff anyway. Because it won't make you too many friends. Too much grace for the wrong people. I actually get complaints about that occasionally. That we're emphasizing caring for the wrong people. A lot of times it's because we look at people and we think they're just experiencing the consequences of the choices they made. If they hadn't done that, they wouldn't be in this predicament. Last week, we sang a song, and it had the phrase, what I got was not what I deserved. And I've been thinking about that all week long. We celebrate God's grace for us. We rejoice that our sins are forgiven and that we get second chances and that Jesus bears the consequence of our sin for us. So we need to be careful about not having a double standard that leaves us singing about God's grace for us while at the same time being content to let other people suffer the consequences of their choices. Too much grace will always be challenging for people because as much as we say that the ground at the foot of the cross is level and that Jesus loves the children, all the children of the world, we have a whole lot more trouble actually living into that. It's like in the story I told at the beginning where they only really wanted people like them in their club and they didn't mind if everybody else was drowning. So now let's pull some lessons out of this for us as individuals and as a church. I think you need to have a purpose statement. Why? Well, Jesus thought it was important. And it will give us focus. It allows us to cut through the noise and focus on the most important things in life. It'll allow us to live with significance, to maximize our time and our resources, and to really make a contribution to what God is doing in the world. So how do you develop a purpose statement? Let's start where Jesus starts. Jesus prepares before his calling. He had to learn the scriptures. We'll have to prepare. We'll need to arm ourselves with scripture. Jesus was tempted, and when he was tempted, he always answers back with Scripture. He knows what's in the Bible. He never relies on, nah uh or I've heard it both ways. You'll be pulled in many directions, and the Bible will teach you the truth about yourself, the truth about your situation, and the world around you. So we've got to prepare. Join a small group where people can help you learn to walk in the Jesus way. And then begin to put things into practice that you learn from the scriptures. And you can do that in the areas where I can state with absolute conviction that you are called to. Are you married? Then you are called to make every effort to honor your spouse and make things work. Do you have kids? You're called to be there for them. If you brought them into the world, you're called to care for them, to put their needs in front of your own. I think when you become a dad, you become last for the next 18 years. There's way too much feedback from celebrities that you need to be true to yourself. No, you don't. If that only means caring about yourself and not keeping your promises. 
Maslow's uh, self-actualization is very different from self-centeredness. If you have kids, you're called to raise your kids to know and love Jesus. Now, these are free moral agents. They will make their own choices, but you can tip the scales in your favor. I watch too many parents make bad choices and then wonder why their kids wander away from faith. You taught them to. Do you work? You're called to integrity and righteousness. If you're a Jesus follower, part of your purpose is to become more like Jesus. These are all things that you are called to in general. And then you need to figure out some more specifics. I know exactly what my calling is. I have a piece of paper that tells me. Years ago, someone else wanted a piece of paper with a calling on it, so I made one up for them. If you want one, let me know. I'll write out a calling for you too. What questions could you ask to figure out what God is calling you to do? Well, what's in front of you? Seriously, what stirs your heart? What resources do you have that could affect other people or move the kingdom of God down the field? What do people appreciate about you? And then try some things out. Once you've figured it out, how do you get good at your calling? Practice. Fail, but get back up on the horse again. I think you also need to continually manage your input. Remember, Jesus' purpose statement starts with, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Make sure you're listening to the Spirit. I think you need to discern. You have to look at things and evaluate. Will this help me fulfill my God-given purpose? Or this is only a distraction. And just as individuals need a purpose statement, so do we as a church. I've prayed so much this year that we will not lose our focus. Our focus this last year was so clear to remain connected to each other and to our community, to proclaim the hope of the gospel into people's lives. And already, I see signs of getting back to worrying about secondary issues. A decade or so ago, several things all came together at once that helped us to clarify our purpose. I said in a sermon that I felt like the cruise director, that my sole purpose was to keep people happy. About the same time, we came to the realization that our children and grandchildren didn't feel the same way about church that we did, and that if we didn't make substantial changes, the future was rather bleak. That was be the beginning of a new purpose, to really reach people for Christ, develop disciples who make disciples, and live lives of compassion, mercy, and justice. Out of that was born North Campus. We saw all the people moving into Gig Harbor North, and there were no churches there. We knew that there were significant outreach possibilities, connection possibilities, so we planted a congregation right smack in the middle of those neighborhoods with the sole purpose of reaching people for Christ. That was the beginning of our Tables of Grace, outreaches that were getting started in Tacoma and Bremerton, and now we have a couple of other possibilities. They all have the purpose of helping us to reach people for Christ, of doing what we say we're here to do. And they've breathed new life into Central Campus as we knew it would, as we serve and care and find ways to grow. But if we don't stay focused on what the purpose of the church is, what will be left? Only our concern to make ourselves happy. We'll occupy ourselves with secondary or tertiary issues. We'll leave the lifeboats unused and make our clubhouse nicer. If the main purpose of the church is to reach people for Christ and to turn them into disciples and have that affect the way we live our lives, there are a lot of other things that just aren't that important. It is important that we form a community of people who've been transformed by Jesus. 
It is important that we love people. It is important that we extend grace to all the wrong people. Several years ago, lots of years ago, we had a Sunday evening service. And we did that because during the summer, we did that so that people could be out enjoying the sun and be out on the boat or whatever, and then come to church at 6.30 or something like that. And it was a little bit edgy, it was loud, and it was fun. And I remember one night over in the back corner of the church by one of the pillars, Bert and Lee Talcott sat there. And Lee at that time was probably 89 years old, and I think Bert was older than Lee was. And the service was loud. I mean, the music was blaring, and it was, you know, we were, we were rocking out and stuff. And uh, I watched Lee, because I could see Lee, and she smiled during the entire time. So afterwards, I make a beeline over to her, and I said, well, that can't have been your cup of tea. And she smiled at me and said, that was wonderful. Whatever it takes to reach the kids, I'm for. And I thought, she gets it. That's the purpose of the church. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, what would you say are the top three purposes of your life right now? Number two, if those are not what they should be, what step can you take to realign your purposes with what God has for you? And number three, what do you really think the purpose of the church is?